It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to EdUp Legal. This is Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School of Law. And today our guest is Karen J. Snedden. She is Interim Dean and Professor of Law at Mercer University School of Law in Macon, Georgia. And she started the interim role in October of 2021, but she's no stranger to Mercer. She has been uh, a member of the faculty at Mercer since 2006. Welcome, Dean Snedden. Well, thank you for having me here. I'm delighted to have this conversation with you today. Well, I'm very excited too. And um, I wanna say first, congratulations on getting through the year. You just had graduation, right? That's right. And commencement was so exciting to be up on the platform for the very first time and not just be able to look out at all of our graduates, but all of their loved ones in the stadium who were there to celebrate with them, all of the faculty and staff who were really part of their professional journey. That has definitely been a highlight of the year. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. We, When I look out, I mean, we had a mask the two times that I had, or we had to do four graduations last year, and I was masked for most of it. This year, I look forward to not being masked, but um, I just was grinning from ear to ear. I'm like, I hope they know that I'm smiling like a proud mom. It's just a real highlight to the position, but I'm glad that you, you got through that and you've finished your first year of being interim, and um, I learned from you recently that you guys have a big anniversary coming for Mercer. So tell us a little bit about that and about Mercer's history. Yeah, well, in 2023, we are going to be celebrating our 150th anniversary. We are the oldest ABA accredited law school in the state of Georgia. We started in fall 1873 by the efforts really of one Macon attorney named Walter Hill. And that very first class, there were just 16 students. And ultimately, by the time they graduated, there were seven graduates in that first year class. And of course, you fast forward now to 2022, and we have 119 graduates that come from over almost 20 states. And we know that they're going to continue really that legacy of being able to make a difference in whatever community they become a part of. So uh, you attract students from all over the country, um, 20 different states. What do you find that your students are looking for who come to Mercer? What draws them to Mercer? Well, at Mercer, we're a deliberately small school. So our entering classes tend to be somewhere between 120 to 140, which you know is a relatively small institution. We're committed to having multiple small sections in the first year. So in addition to what we would say a small section of about 25 students in our Intro to Legal Research course and our legal writing courses, we have one if not two small sections additionally in each of the semesters, whether that is our civil lawsuits, which is our civil procedure course, or criminal law. So students really get that 
personal individualized attention. They're not sitting in a big class of 100 for all of their classes. Certainly in the upper level, we do have some bigger classes, but we really are dedicated to having that small school experience that will welcome all of the students into legal education and set them up for success for whatever holds for them after they graduate. That's outstanding. I imagine that builds some really close relationships between your students as well. It does, and we have faculty who have been here not just five years or 10 years or over 15 like mine. We have faculty who really have been here for part of their 20 years or 30 years. That's a great connection to our current students, but also to our alumni. We have a lot of alumni really throughout the country, over 6,000 living alums, and they are all invested in the success of Mercer. They remember that small school experience, even if they were in a slightly different building than we are today. They remember going to the professor's offices to talk through questions. They remember studying with their classmates in an environment that's not cutthroat. It's competitive, of course, because it's law school, but you would be able to see people who would be happy to share notes with someone if they weren't there, be happy to go ahead and nudge someone if they were going down the wrong direction in the class discussion. Well, and I imagine since you've been at Mercer since 2006 that you know a lot of these alums. How has that experience to transition from being a faculty member with the alumni body to being the interim dean? Well, first of all, it's made me realize that I'm older now because I have alums that have become partners at large firms in Atlanta and elsewhere, and I don't know where the years have gone. I was used to being a junior faculty member, then I was mid-level, now I'm senior and part of the administration, so it's been quite a number of years for me and an exciting journey. One thing, though, that I has really liked, I was just up at a law firm in Atlanta visiting with some of our alums, including many that I taught, to remember what they were like in the first semester and how nervous they were about starting this journey and to be able to see how the moments at Mercer became part of who they were and informed their professional journey and continue to draw upon that has really just been delightful. That's terrific. And um, your scholarship and your teaching work has been in the area of trust in estates and legal writing, from what I understand. Um, and Mercer is known for its legal writing program, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, part of Mercer's commitment is to preparing students for practice, and that means preparing them to be writers. I often think there's one word that really describes what a lawyer does. That word actually is writer. I mean, yes, it's advocate and counselor and evaluator and negotiator, all of those things. But I think for the most part, it starts with writing, right? It's an email, it is a motion, it is a will, it is a contract. And to be able to help law students transition from their previous writing to what it means to be a legal writer, but also to be part of their own identity. Because when we write, we're really putting ourselves on the page. So who do they want to become is what I think legal writing helps them think about. It's more than just commas and periods and semicolons. It really is thinking, I'm gonna make a difference by every single word that I choose to put on the page. Helping them with that journey has really just been wonderful to be critical of what they write it's not just something to get down on paper, but it's really to advance a position. It's to make an argument. Quite frankly, it's to make a difference in some way, big or small. 
So I really like the your viewpoint there. Um, of course, it's a, a way of advocating, a way of communicating. Legal writing um, does all of those things, but that it's a part of your identity, how you choose to write. That's a really interesting viewpoint, and um, and I imagine makes a, a difference for students when they're learning if they think about it that way. Yeah, and it helped. I, I like to think it helps them think beyond. There's one way of doing something or even that there's not a right way and a wrong way of putting together an office memo. I mean, obviously there are rules that you could run afoul of if you write the contract and you miss something that should have been in the operating terms, but to really think this is their chance of shaping that transaction, of influencing people's perception of these arguments, that there are many different ways of doing that I think that is creative and that gives them the freedom to explore choices. So obviously I talk about IRAC, right? The issue rule analysis conclusion, but it helps them think that's a, a guide, that's a starting point. There's never a reason where you have to use that all the time. There's lots of reasons where you wanna think beyond that. What makes a really powerful paragraph is more than counting up the number of sentences that go into it. It's really thinking about what ideas of value does the writer want to advance and share? I noted in looking at your biographical information that in 2021, you received the 2020 Teresa G. Phelps Scholarship Award for Legal Communication. And uh, that was for a law review article called Clause A to Clause Z, Narrative Transportation and the Transactional Reader. It's an interesting title. Um, and could you tell us a little bit about what the focus of that article was? Sure, and it's really made my day to think that someone else has read or looked at that article who's not personally related to me or was my co-author, Sue Chesler. So I, I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you, thank you. Um, what uh, my colleague out at uh, Arizona State, Sue Chesler and I have done is we've worked on really a series of articles and that one on narrative transportation is just one of several where we think critically about transactional documents and how to build a better mousetrap. So we really think, how do you advance the purpose, given that you have these two readers, right? You have the primary readers who maybe are the transacting parties. You have these secondary readers that might include ancillary parties who need to perform with the contract. Maybe it is the court who needs to go ahead and take a look at it. Maybe it's going to be some type of body that's going to need to give administrative approval on something, sort of like an agency in the government maybe it becomes part of the public when it hits social media with what the discussion is. So we think about how could we make those documents better? And I think there's something we can draw from the world of narrative. Even though we don't, I don't necessarily believe that life is like a fictional narrative, I do think we live our life in narrative moments. So when we go home, I tell my spouse the story of my day, even though it doesn't unfold like a fairy tale or a murder mystery or a thriller or anything like that. So It'd be terrible if it came out like a murder mystery, right? Like nobody <laughs> wants that at their law school. <laughs> Some of it is like a thriller being in the dean's office. You never know what's going to happen next. And That's it's for sure. It's a huge surprise who walks through my door uh, on a daily basis. Um, 
as we're thinking about it again, like, but that's compelling, right? That's that human element. That's the way you pull it in. And narrative transportation is this idea that you can draw the reader into your narrative. You can help them be more engaged so that they ultimately have better comprehension and better recall. You know, think about the fact that we often read for pleasure to go to another place, right? Like an armchair traveler. Now, I know that a contractor will doesn't seem like it could take you somewhere else, but sometimes it is, right? It's a way of pulling you into that world. Who are these parties? What are they trying to accomplish? The better that someone engages with their documents, that they understand it, that they recall it, the more likely they are to act in accordance with the terms of the document or be able to work things out if things don't go according to plan. We've worked on that piece, which was really wonderful. And one of our new pieces is coming out in the Nevada Law Journal. And that's where we take the stance that transactional documents are really persuasive legal writing and that transactional lawyers are really advocates, not in the same way perhaps that we think about advocating in front of a court. But again, it's that sense of we think we know what wills and contracts are all about, but there's more for us to understand if we look at it through a slightly different lens and we use that narrative lens. So when you were talking about um, making some of these transactional documents uh, more narrative-like um, and having parties be able to understand them more, maybe recall them more, what would be an example of that? Well, something that a lot of people go to, which is a good example, but not the only one, so I'll give you multiple examples, is we think about the recitals to the contract, right? So that's a great way of setting the stage here. What is it that the parties are hoping to accomplish? Where are they coming from, right? So think about it with the service contract. You're not always dealing with two huge kind of corporate um, entities. Sometimes you're dealing with someone who's a relatively new to the business or someone who is coming from a family business. Setting the stage with some of those recitals can help people understand what's the different perspective that individuals are looking at. Something that's relatively simple, but we don't do a lot of in transactional drafting for a variety of reasons, but we could change that by using the names of the company or the parties more. So instead of just employee, employer, really customize it with the names. They have to proofread carefully, otherwise they will be problems but people like it when they see their name. They're more attentive when they see their name. So something that can have a person take a sense of ownership, that's a small way that could make a big difference. That's really interesting. I, I'd never thought about that, but yes, if you start to see your name throughout the document, it would perhaps it would make it feel um, more applicable. Um, and as you said, you have a, a greater sense of ownership. Um, I just think about not only the name, but then the the pronouns all the way through, right? You'd have to make sure. Um, but it might be worth it if that meant that um, the parties would take it more seriously and, and think it was more applicable to them. Now, I love that phrase that you've just said, worth it. Like, all of these things are not just kind of like fun things that make the contract something that attorneys could charge more for or that people would necessarily pick up and read for fun, but it would have actually advance the purpose of the transaction. Think about how landlord tenant, that just feels so bland. Like who's got the responsibility for what to put the people's names there? 
I think pronouns are a great example of what you were saying too. A lot of people really identify with particular pronouns and when those are not the pronouns that are used in their documents, that creates a barrier for identifying with that particular document, those responsibilities, those obligations. You could do some other things like changing the sequence of the provisions. So there are some things you wouldn't want to run afoul of and putting them in the incorrect order. In a will, you don't give away the residuary, which is the leftover before you do the pre-residuary gifts. But you could choose to lead with the guardians because that's the reason that someone is creating the will. You could choose to lead with the nominations of the personal representatives or within the gifts, who goes first, right? That can say something about what the, uh, the client thinks is most important or the transacting parties think is most important rather than maybe what is convenient for the drafter or what is typical. Lots of times we should respect conventions, but many times we shouldn't be bound by those conventions. So pushing the boundaries in how we approach the drafting process is something that Sue Chester and I have been arguing for. That's very interesting. And, you know, I think about the, um, the less uh, familiar parties, those who are maybe engaging in a contract or entering into a contract, and it's their first contract, or maybe it's not their first contract, but um, using those terms that are less familiar, make it more difficult for the party to even understand what they're agreeing to. Um, you know, am I the mortgagor or the mortgagee? Am I the landlord or the tenant? Wait a minute, who's responsible for that? You know, it can cause a lot of confusion with those who are not as familiar with the law as we are. Well, and then they can start to act in a way they think they're supposed to, but that's not actually required by the document. So often transactional documents, they're written once and executed once, but they're going to be used time and time again as someone goes back and says, wait, what was I supposed to be doing here? The last thing you probably want people to do is just try to recall from memory a provision that they never understood in the first place. So something that brings them in, but gives them a great way to kind of come back to and say, well, now I have a question. I love your example there, Patty, of mortgagor and mortgagee, because those never seem to make sense. And I teach real estate transactions as well. And the students are always flipping that around. And that's a totally different set of responsibilities that each of them have. Oh, I have to slow myself down when I'm reading <laughs> documents like that and go, wait a minute now, who, did, who has to do that? Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's more along the lines of um, the plain writing, right? If you're going to use the identity of the parties instead of these um, archaic terms that people might not understand, or even less boilerplate and more like, if your rent payment is late, this was this is what happens, not... If in paragraph three, you haven't, you know, what complied with the contract in accordance with A25 or whatever, um, you can just make it much simpler for the parties to understand. And that gets really my overall philosophy about the scholarship I do in legal writing, but also the teaching. So yeah, I'm, I'm teaching my law students to be competent legal writers, but I'm also teaching them to have confidence in their decisions and to be creative. So they don't have to just have it one way. Like what you said, they can understand what the legal requirements are, but they don't have to say exactly what was in a statute that was promulgated years and years ago. They can go ahead and say, what's the critical language that needs to be included in here? 
Well, I'll have to take a look at some of your other articles. And I see that you are um, a co-author of the regular column, Writing Matters for the Georgia Bar Journal, along with Professor David Krejcik. Is that how you say it? Yeah, David Rissick and Rissick. I. Okay. Yeah, that is probably the thing that more people read that I've written out of anything. Well, my students read their feedback, of course, I should say that that's important to them. But yeah, David and I have been writing uh, that regular column since 2008 in the Georgia Bar Journal. You can get the current issue and all of the past issues online. And it's a great way of having reminders to the practicing bar of what does it mean to be a legal writer. Hopefully we have some tips and tricks that help people as they're transitioning and becoming a more expert legal writer. Sometimes it's reminders and the things that we hear back from our readers are just really rewarding. We get ideas sometimes from them about what they would like to see. It's nice when we hear from readers that they pull that section out. David Rissick tells me this, so I do not know independently this is true, but apparently it's the second most uh, popular section of the Georgia Bar Journal. We are second behind obituaries. Wow, well, how about that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a funny kind of um, rank to have, but good for you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, all right. Well, you mentioned earlier um, that practicing to make a difference, practice with a purpose is part of the mission of Mercer. And I wonder if you can share with us ways in which students do that at Mercer. Um, is it through clinical education or pro bono or what their postgraduate plans are? How do you see that develop with your students and your graduates? I do think a lot of people are drawn to Mercer because we do have this commitment to service, service to the community and service within the legal profession. So we've had 12 Georgia governors that are graduates of our law school. So I think that's they, a lot, it especially is. with your small class size. It, it is, and our most recent one was Governor Nathan Deal. So we've had a, a lot of people who, again, come and say, this is gonna be, this is part of my identity and this is what I want to do. We apparently have more judges in the state of Georgia than the other Georgia law schools, so at all of the different levels. So they certainly continue that once they've been here. Here at the law school, we give them lots of opportunities. Their student organizations are very much into community service. And our BALSA chapter for the second year in a row was the top medium chapter in the country. Part of that is their commitment to the community. Fantastic. And how about clinical education? What do you all offer and uh, are you expanding that? Yeah, we really recognize that preparing students for practice means they've got to have those experiential opportunities and the clinical opportunities are especially critical. We've had the habeas clinic for a long time. We added a second clinic several years ago that's the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic. This past spring, we actually added a third clinic, which is a low-income taxpayer clinic. And this fall, we're going to add a fourth clinic, which will be a domestic violence clinic. And I think the thing that you can see with all of those four clinics is really a commitment to the community to identify people who are in need of legal services. And our students are really excited under appropriate supervision to make a difference that way. 
Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad to hear about the, um, the expansion of the clinics as clinics are very dear to my heart. <laughs> um, so before we go on to, uh, to the question that I ask all our guests, I have a couple more for you. First, I see you have a lovely bear pin on and a very bright colored shirt. And maybe you can tell me I'm thinking they might be connected. That's right. So we are the Mercer Bears. So our colors are black and orange. And we often say go bears or be the bear. That's the undergraduate um, kind of slogan. What we really have though in the undergraduate, which we've incorporated over here, is that at Mercer, every student majors in changing the world. And even though we don't have multiple majors here at the law school, we really think that's what students do. They change the world. They figure out how to solve problems, create opportunities, and really become agents of change in the community. So yeah, definitely go Bears. <laughs> That's great. Um, and have you enjoyed uh, the transition from faculty member to interim dean? And if so, what is it you're enjoying about the experience? I'm really enjoying the experience. I grew up in higher education. My father is himself an academic. He is an analytical professor. He's now emeritus, but he was department chair of the chemistry back in the day. So I always knew a little bit about administration. He's uh, more than happy to tell me all the things that I should and shouldn't be doing, uh, even though he has <laughs> never been dean. <laughs> but I do enjoy seeing how the law school fits within the overall university. At Mercer, we have 12 different academic units. We have a really strong traditional undergraduate College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, but we have a School of Theology and a School of Medicine. We've got the College of Pharmacy. We have a College of Health Professions. We have a School of Music, and that creates a lot of opportunities for collaboration that I'm hoping that we can do a little bit more of. The School of Business, I think, presents a lot of opportunities here and things that we might do. Something that I've been able to kind of help happen during this year is we have a dedicated um, member of the Board of Visitors who says, look, I really think that Mercer needs to seize the opportunity with more transactional type of courses and experiences. And he wanted to propose a corporate council externship, which is part of our focus on experiential education. I was able to help in a very small way that idea come into fruition. And we're going to have our first group of students this fall who are going to be part of that. I'd like to seek some more opportunities across the university for collaboration. We have, for example, a really wonderful school of engineering, and there can be some opportunities for collaboration. So I'd, I'd like to be able to do that. You already mentioned one of the things I've enjoyed the most, which is getting out and meeting with the alums and see all of the great work that they do. I've always thought it's great that there's no one path to law school. You can come straight from undergraduate. You could be like I was coming from the College of Liberal Arts. You could be coming from another career. You have lots of ways to get to law school. And once you graduate, there's unlimited paths. So helping students be prepared for that, thinking of new opportunities, that's really been a great thing I can do. And then I see that they've actually done all of those wonderful things that I hope they would be able to do. 
well, certainly seems that you're enjoying it. And I wonder, is there, if you had a point to one thing that most surprised you about being interim dean, what would it be? that most surprises me, I think, is the amount of paperwork that I have um, here. The number of reports that need to be created, updates that need to be sent. I knew that there was some of that, but I did not know how much I would be putting my writing skills into practice by creating reports and sharing that with all of these stakeholders. Well, at least you can put in there some narrative elements so they're more interesting for people to read. <laughs> Well, the final question that I ask all of our guests is about the future of legal education. We've certainly seen tremendous change um, during the pandemic, and that was forced change. But now in the coming decade, how do you think that legal education is likely to evolve? Well, that's such a great question. And there's so many different ways of answering that. And in some ways, I just hope that I'll be able to be in a position 10 years from now to look back and say, oh, yeah, that's what I thought would happen. Because if I were to think about 10 years ago, where we would be in 2022, there is no way I would have had that prediction, right? I don't know that anyone could have. It's been a crazy 10 years. <laughs> it, it definitely has. Um, one thing I think that's going to happen is that we're going to continue, and I think Mercer's been at the forefront of this, have that connection to practice and that experience in the three years. The days of chalk and talk, where the professor is at the front of the classroom talking to or over the heads of the student, it's long gone. We've incorporated assessments in addition to experiential opportunity, I think we're going to have more of that. I think we're going to have situations where we kind of have lab course experiences where students are going to be reading kind of the traditional first year materials, for example, but they won't just be reading about contracts. They'll really be doing the full simulation. And that won't be an unusual occurrence that's isolated to one law school. We're going to see that really across. Students want to make a difference while they are here. So I think the expansion of clinics will certainly continue because they wanna be a part of their community. I think we're gonna see leadership training come into legal education. Lawyers have always been leaders, but now we realize you have to train to be a leader, that it's not just something that comes naturally. So I think with all of the discussions about professional identity, and about the formation of that professional identity, we'll have some more leadership training than we've had before. Well, I think that 10 years from now, you'll look back and go, yep, I was right. Because I, <laughs> I think you're very dead on with all of those um, predictions. And I've certainly enjoyed getting to know more about you and your transition to the position um, of leading Mercer Law School and also learning more about just Mercer University and the School of Law. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a delight to talk with you today. Great. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience Podcast Network bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.